Hello, hello, peace lovers, peacemakers, peace builders. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. The fact that you are watching this show means that you are yourself also peaceful bridge makers. We honor our guests and I believe that they are absolute peaceful bridge makers that are trying to bridge and connect cultures, nations, languages, people. So here I am very excited about this program and this conversation because with my guests, we are going to talk about a question that why Islamic law and Islamic system does not uh, treat women just. In many uh, Muslim countries and Islamic nations, women do not enjoy many of the rights that we do enjoy in the West. For instance, the divorce does not grant easily to women or they cannot hold the child custody uh, of, uh, of, of their kids. Uh, or for our guests, uh, she is a filmmaker and scholar expert in Islamic law. She had her uh, movie called Divorce Iranian Style. Honestly, I, I could never bring myself to watch the movie from the beginning to the end. I, I always get emotional. I become very, very sad. And I, I, I have to confess that I could not watch the movie from the beginning to the end. And we are going to discuss what's happening and why. My guest, Ziba Mir Hosseini, is an Iranian-British legal anthropologist specialized in Islamic law and gender studies. She holds PhD from Cambridge University and is the author of several books, a filmmaker of two amazing movies. And her new book, which is out, Journeys Toward Gender Equality in Islam. And I am absolutely so pleased and marveled to have Ziba for our show. Thank you so much and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for including me. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's absolutely a pleasure. Ziba, here is a maybe tough or not very tough question, but I would like to know, I mean, you are a, a female writer and you are an author who authored this book. But in this book, we have six scholars, three men and three women. I wanted to see more women. So what happened and why we are so equal? in this um, choice of um, uh, selecting people? That was a, actually a deliberate choice because for this book, I started researching this book since 2009. And I had conversations as I had info, uh, interviews and recordings with a number of scholars, activists. But at the end, you know, for a book, I wanted to go uh, in detail. Uh, in this conversation. So I, I had to make difficult choice. And I, I made the choice for, for these six scholars. And basically, because each of them are path breakers, the, each of them brought something very new to Islamic legal uh, studies and also for the uh, gender equality. And at the same time, uh, they are activists. So I wanted to choose them. And, and I can think you me, not... Can you give me an example? You say that they are they brought some of the uh, important uh, aspects within the Islamic law. Uh, so can you give me an example of one yes. or two of them? 
Yeah, for instance, the first person that I'm talking to is Professor Abdullahi Al-Naim. He is the first uh, scholar who actually did something very meaningful and constructive uh, on relations between Islamic law and human rights. And he himself uh, was the student and uh, disciple and supporter of uh, Mahmoud Muhammad Taha, the very well-known reformer of the 20th century who was executed in Sudan. So he comes from the Sudan. And I love his work because it was actually reading his work, I was able to understand the relations between Islamic law and human rights. So he's my teacher as well. So mm-hmm. I learned from him. But then, you know, with your teachers, you also disagree. So our parts separated. And then the second person is Amina what, what What do you disagree with this scholar? With uh, Abdullahi Mm al-Naim, he's also a friend, uh, and um, it is on the definition, on the way that he uses the term Sharia, Mm -hmm. and does not make distinction in his uh, writings between Sharia and Fiqh, because Sharia does not mean law. And And in the Quran, it appears this term only once. And it means actually in the sense of the path, the road to the source. But what we get from the Sharia is always an interpretation on the basis on the Quran and the sayings of the Prophet. And this is through the science of Islamic jurisprudence, which is called fiqh. And fiqh is re- literally means understanding. And all these understandings until very recently have been done by men. Women were there, but by the time that this fact jurisprudential schools emerged 150 years after the death of the prophet, women were marginalized, their voices were silenced, and they were put aside from the public space. And that was not the case. In the the introduction, Yes, uh, I'm going to follow up on that point. But in the in the introduction, since we're talking about fiqh, you mentioned that uh, fuqaha are so much like the uh, law professors at the university you were visiting, because usually law professors doesn't like any speculation. They want to be certain of uh, of the rules, of the laws, of the regulations, and you found similarities. Can you tell me about the similarities between law professors and Fuqaha? Yes, I did did research in uh, 1990s, um, in 1995, in uh, Qom, which is the center of Islamic uh, Shia learning. And I had conversations and interviews with the ulama, and that forms the basis of my uh, second book. So um, uh, for them, you know, uh, it's it's the nature of the law. And they think that there is a legal solution for every problem. And when they are working within an Islamic framework, they actually think that they have the right and duty to provide these solutions. And all this must be done by them. Is is this Ahkam? Yes, yes, it is uh, ahkam. Yes, this is what they drive. They understand from the Quran and from the Hadith, which are the uh, literature or reports on the sayings and deeds of the Prophet. And they use uh, the methodology. And the methodology, the classical methodology, has two elements. One is analogy, 
which is called qiyas, that is reasoning by analogy. So which is a very limited form of reasoning. And the second one is consensus, consensus among the jurists. And uh, I, I am an anthropologist, so I never uh, taught in law schools until 2002 when I went to New York uh, Law School, New York University. And there, you know, I was part of the faculty and I went to workshops and everything and I could see the mindset. But it's not fair to say that all lawyers are like this, but when they, you have to be like this because law needs to deal with certainties. So no, uh, no wonder that for this Rasala or the book of Ahkam uh, or ru rulings, we have a very thick book because it's basically about everything, every yes, matter of, yes. but here's the issue. Does Fogaha leave any room for individual reasoning? Yes, they do, and especially for the Shia law, uh, especially in Shia law, reason or aql or intellect is a source of law. And it can be on the same level as uh, the revelation because our uh, reason, our faculty of reason never goes against uh, revelation. And if it goes against revelation, that means that we didn't understand it well. So there is a place for it, but in practice, it's not used. Yes, this is my point. In yes. practices, because, because when we are talking about use of reasoning, we are talking about the use of reasoning that indicated and imposed by men. Yes, and also the in the case of Fogaha uh, or Muslim juries, it is the reasoning that belongs to the at least three, four hundred years ago. And Sibba, because Sibba, why we are is, not, it, it was the, my conversation with Mustafa. And um, what is this resistance toward not being able to ref you're talking about me in the book at the beginning you're talking mm. about three uh, mindset and three groups of ulama of traditionalists neo-traditionalists and reformists um, and then in our conversation you said that the middle ground the neo-traditionalists are in a larger space compared to traditional and reform but what really uh, prohibits uh, this the thinking to go towards reformist ideology faster? I think it is identity. And also mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with the legacy of colonial time. There was a time that Islam, Islamic civilization was at its zenith. And we must not forget that many of the um, sciences came from uh, translations of books that Muslim scholars um, translated from Greek. But then, you know, when uh, decline started, and with the decline also came the colonial conquest by the 18th, 19th century, identity became very important. And, and Muslims went into defensive. And when you are in a defensive position, you attach to the tradition. You don't want change because that is a threat. So it is political. Uh, it is a political. But uh, within the scholars, there are also, uh, even within the seminaries, who are very 
um, they're thinking are very up to date, contemporary, but they are a minority. And then it is the question of power. Mm-hmm. And the power is very important because, you know, they want to keep together. And in Iran now, you know, after the Islamic Republic, this traditional fiqh or Islamic jurisprudence is in dominance. And the country is facing a lot of problem, but at the same time does not want to change it or cannot afford to change it because they lose their their power. And also because if they change it, they open the door for change and democratic. And, And I think what is important is that we need to democratize the production of knowledge in every field, including in religious field. And one of my aim is to do that, to include women's voices and also to produce religious knowledge. You need to have a ruling which is meaningful in our context. You just can't rely on the traditional sources. You must have a conversation with others, with sociologists, anthropologists, uh, economics, you know, the, the science, uh, the knowledge is now so diverse. So you mm-hmm. you can't be one source. Sure. And that's, be... and that's why you decided to include men and women and also women. Tell me about in what way you chose the women in this book. Yes. I mm, First of all, I think men are important. Because, uh, you know, if we talk about justice and equality, it must be for men and women together. And we are connected in so many ways. So uh, I wanted to have the voices of men in this book as well, because I value their voices. But the three women in my book are actually exceptional in so many ways. One is Amina Vadud. She is a Muslim uh, American, uh, African American Muslim, and also she is the one who chose Islam because many of us are born into this faith, and we don't choose our religion. She she actually uh, fell in love with the Quran, and she produced the first book in 1992, which is looking. She introduced the concept gender as an analytical category in understanding the Quran. And also in 2005, she was the first woman who became an imam leading a prayer. Uh, we are gonna we're gonna go to uh, Sadiga Vasmari very soon because I really love how you are introducing them and mm-hmm. then how they are intru- introducing themselves very quickly to my next question and then we go back to this question. In your conversation, in your explanation, you just said that men are important in this study, and that really resonated with me because you know. In the work of feminism, as much as I understood, uh, feminists are labeled as women who do not like men. They labeled as, you know, men haters and, um, I mean, against men, so forth and so on, which may or may not be true. I am not judging, but this is the label that they've been given. However, in the Islamic studies and Islamic uh, discourse, we do have this... um, 
idea this uh, kind of uh, connotation towards Islamic discourse, discourse as we call Islam as compassionate and peaceful and Rahman, Rahim, all of those. I think maybe because of this reason, we are uh, trying to um, include men as much as I understood of not just just pushing them away. No, no, they, they are part of discussion. And and therefore, it is not totally feminism in the Islamic studies. It is um, women's advocacy, or it is gender studies. And it's we are not excluding men because because of the uh, compassionate and kindness um, uh, attitude that is within the Islamic uh, fabric. So, what what do you think about my understanding? I, I think that, you know, it's so difficult to generalize, you know, uh -huh. all over the world, including in Islamic context, feminists have a bad name. Uh -huh. And the bad name is given to them by their opponents. Why? Because they challenge patriarchy. And we live in a world that the order is patriarchy. And we are all socialized in patriarchy, whether we are men or women. But there are many men who break away from patriarchy. And I think, you know, for feminism is basically just doing away with breaking the hold of patriarchy. And in, for, if you work within an Islamic context and Islamic studies, the moment that you say I'm a feminist, you lose legitimacy. So for that reason, many women who work in Islamic context, they don't want to call themselves. Feminists. Why would you uh, lose your legitimacy? Because of uh, feminism seen as an alien concept. It is, came from the West. It was imposed by the West. Mm -hmm. And it can be true because um, at the time of colonial time, uh, feminism was used as a way of dehumanizing and demeaning Muslims. And we also see that for political reasons, feminism is used. The Iraq war uh, in 2003 and then 2001 in Afghanistan, it was done in the name of democracy, liberation of women and all this. So uh, we have that uh, political side of it. But for me, it is important to separate uh, an idea from the practice and politics of that idea. You know, Islam is compassionate. Islam is about peace. But at the same time, it has been used by political Islam, by the Islamists, by people like Daesh for violence. Human rights is for human dignity. But at the same time, in the politics of human rights, we see that the discourse of human rights is used in that way. So I'm among those who want and claim to be a feminist and a Muslim. And I don't see them in contradiction. And I, it, I think it is important that for us to have Islamic feminism, not only as an identity, uh, because being Muslim is an identity, but also as part of producing knowledge theology and understanding it and uh, theology is very important and I see our problem in Muslim context for women to be as much as 
theological as it is political, and it, you cannot separate them. In the Western context, this is not the case because the role of religion in public life and in the private life is very different. And uh, the context is very different. But in Muslim context, you know, the role of religion is there in the public life and private life. And therefore, if you are working for equality and justice, which, it, you know, um, feminism is justice for women in a just world, which mm -hmm. includes men as well, which includes the poor as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I see it as an inclusive way. And, inclusive and I think, way. you know, and I think, you know, I want to claim both of them. And I, I don't want to be forced to choose. Or maybe maybe we come, uh, come up with a phrase or a term that includes men and women in the most compassionate and peaceful way. I'm going to come back to ask my follow-up questions, but please stay put with me. You are watching and listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, we are talking with Zibami Hosseini, scholar, activist, filmmaker, and author of Journeys Toward gender equality in Islam. I'm going to ask her about the solution that she's offering and also the journey. She's talking about the journey that really take her and the people that she's talking with in this book to, to come up with um, a practical solution about feminism and about women advocacy and women rights uh, within the Islamic discourse. She is regular contributor and out, outspoken member of Musaba. So she is a founding member of Musaba, an organization advocating for equality and justice in a Muslim family. I'm going to ask uh, Ziba about, about Musaba. She is frequent in many TV shows, radio shows, and uh, she's been uh, studied on many TV documentaries. Also, she has sat uh, on a jury committee on a few international film festivals, including San Francisco International Film Festival and International Human Rights Documentary. I am very pleased to have Ziba, uh, author of Journeys Toward Gender Equality in Islam. Uh, Ziba, so you're talking about journey. You're talking about your own journey and also the journey of these people that you are featuring in the book. Tell me uh, where do we land at the end of the journey? For a better word for a world that women and men are equal and equal human being. And for me, really, feminism is about uh, women's humanity. And we say that women are human beings. But in fact, you know, in many religions, I'm not saying in religious knowledge or in practice, women are not treated as a human being. So. And claiming that humanity of women is very important. And uh, the journey, it is a journey, and we will never have an ideal work, but it is struggling for justice. And I think this struggle is important, and also speaking out when we see injustice. And uh, this is what we do in Musaba. And Musaba came into existence in 2009. It was launched in 2009, and it brings a group of activists, Muslim activists, Muslim women's activists, and scholars together to argue for equality and justice, both within the human rights framework and um, Islamic uh, 
legal tradition. I don't say Islam because Islam is about justice, but the legal tradition is a different matter. And Muslims are not treated as equal human beings in the legal tradition. And it needs to be changed. And when we say equality, we must realize that is gender equality, and especially gender equality is a modern concept, did not exist before modernity. And especially gender equality, gender equality became essential to our understanding of justice only in the course of 20th century. I must say that Islamic legal tradition until 19th century was better than any other legal traditions in the Western context in the sense of giving women's right. You know, women had the right to property and access to divorce, not equal access. And the gap started in the 1920th century. And it has political reason. It has to do with a legacy, as I said, legacy of colonialism and also Muslims' defensiveness. And I felt that it needs to be broken. And we should be proud of our tradition. But at, at the same time, every tradition needs to be renewed and retaught. And I'm going to ask here. about I'm going to ask about uh, the uh, optimism in the book. But uh, here's my question. Do you include Western feminism in Islamic feminism? Uh, you know, we cannot generalize about Western feminism. As a knowledge product, um, um, knowledge um, field, yes. Because the, uh, there are a number of uh, Christian feminists, Jewish feminists, who have done very important work. And they started their work much before um, uh, Islamic um, uh, feminists. You know, Islamic feminists as a critical uh, discourse came into existence only in the last two, two decades of 20th century. So there are there, and I myself have learned a lot from them, and there is a conversation from them. Yes, I do uh, include, but there are some feminists who do not want to touch religion, and some Muslims who do not want to deal with religion. And I don't think that, you know, uh, there is much more agreement between us because for me, religion is important, not only because it is to do with identity, it is to do with power, with politics, and, and also it pro uh, I don't see religion as an obstacle. I see it as a, as a resource and it gives you a lot of power to what to do how to claim your faith. And um, whereas, you know, this is the difference. So there are, there are feminists who are absolutely have a secular, secularist approach. And there are also some Muslim women who don't want to call themselves feminists, who don't have uh, any antagonism towards uh, equality, but they don't want to be identified with um, Western feminism. Mm -hmm. The book is optimistic about finding solution. Yes. What solution are you offering? I think um, women's right and in Islam is very much tied with the democracy, human rights, and democratic change. 
And at the same time, knowledge is important. So the solution for me is to bring knowledge together with activism, because the knowledge on its own, you can have the best interpretation uh, of the Quran or understanding of um, uh, Islamic jurisprudence in line with the modern uh, values, with the modern way of living. But at the same time, if it is not in power, if it does not become the dominant discourse, it's not going to be changed. But at the same, at the, and for, therefore, for me, it is important to have movements, to have activism from that. And I see in Muslim context, one of the problems as this dichotomy between those who work within a human rights framework, and especially of, if they are women, feminist framework, and those who only work within Islamic. And I think this is a false dichotomy. It needs to be broken. And uh, the false and dichotomy is that to staying only within the one particular discourse, e either religion or um, non-religion. Yes, the, that is a dichotomy because you need both religion and the secular. Uh -huh. And and without secular, you know, we need a secular state. So can we say that secularism provides reasoning and analogy and analysis and religion uh, provides a um, way of uh, putting this analogy and reason together and provide knowledge? I see secularism providing the ground for uh -huh. um, exercising this knowledge and producing this knowledge. Because if you have religion as an official uh, any religion become the official discourse of the state is tied with the state, then you have one interpretation. Yes. So we need we need a secular space in order to be Muslim, uh -huh. to be faithful. And, you know, you need secular, political secularism. Yeah, Absolutely. As well. Talking about the feminist scholars, we didn't get to uh, include, uh, you wanted to explain Sadiqa Wasmari. So uh, very yes. briefly, who is she? She is an uh, Iranian. She um, is incredible. You know, the last chapter of the book uh, is a conversation with Sadiqa Wasmari. She is one of the women jurists who used to study Islamic jurisprudence fair in university and in the theology department in Tehran University. And uh, then, she, so she has the knowledge of fair or Islamic jurisprudence, but at the same time, critically looks at it and engages at it. And her project is basically arguing for the fact that fair, cannot be the source of uh, law. It is a law like any other law and, and also against the power of the um, uh, clergy. And her project is basically to separate, to separate and, um, and she, she might sometimes, you know, she might be critical of Islamic feminism and things like this, but what she does is I see it as very feminist. She's an incredible, she's a thinker and she's a theologian and also a very brave woman. Very brave woman. Do you have um, any project in hand that you are looking at to finish? 
uh, in Musawa, because one part of the Musawa's work is knowledge building. And the first big project that we did, which was a long term project and took us about seven years, was to retain two key concepts in Islamic jurisprudence. And these two concepts are Qawama and Belaya that place women under male guardianship and authority. And actually in that project, we deconstructed that. And the um, writings are there. And after doing that, we started a new uh, project. And this new project is actually about the construction, reconstruction. And because what I see as one problem is that the ethics that we have in Islamic jurisprudence ethics that inform the interpretation of the Quran is a patriarchal ethics. So we need actually to have an egalitarian ethics. What so is egalitarian? Uh, you know, for us, we find it in the uh, several concepts in the Quran. Mm -hmm. That is adl, which is justice. Mm -hmm. That is ensaf, which is fairness. Mm -hmm. That is quest, which is again uh, equity as well, and also the concept of ihsan, mm -hmm. which is about goodness and beauty. Another concept which is very important in Islam is the concept of maruf. Mm -hmm. That is according to what is right, according to what <coughs> excuse me, people accept, society accepts norms. So this is a new study that we started two years, three years ago, and we have done the first phase of it, which is the theoretical, and the book is coming out uh, in, inshallah, in November, and it is called... 22, 22, November 22. Yes, yes, yes. Do you know we the have name? Some, the, yes, the... Um, Justice and Beauty in Muslim Marriages. Very good. Justice and beauty in Muslim marriages. In Muslim marriages and towards egalitarian ethics and laws. Uh, because Ziba, ethics and laws are important. Ziba, when we say egalitarian, it's a mouthful word. What is egalitarian? What is the word itself? Basically, what is not patriarchal. Uh-huh. It's based on equality. Uh-huh. Yeah, Very good. It is, but, but what is equality? Equality does not mean sameness. No, equality doesn't mean that you but, delete men. It's it's yes. Uh, to equality be fair. does not mean that you have treat. Men. E equality means that to treat men and women as equals. Mm -hmm. So it is about marriage as a partner of equals. Okay, so I finally understood what is egalitarian. Please stay put with me. You are watching and listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, we talk with Ziba Mir Hosseini, author of Journeys Toward Gender Equality in Islam. Uh, at the end of every program, we ask our guests to share something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion. I'm so glad that we are finishing our conversation with the last comments of Ziba was about peace and about Ehsan and, and kindness. So I'm sure that she has a lot to tell us about peace, kindness, and compassion. Yes, Sibajan, go ahead. Uh, yes, Sarah, I want to read one of the saddest poems. That is the 7th century Iranian poet. 
And this uh, poem is also now in human uh, use at UN as well. And I, um, I read it. Um, do you want me to read it in Persian and then? Absolutely. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. And... and then the translation. Bani Adam azayik pekarand ke dar afarinish seyek goharand. So this line means all human beings are members of the one frame or one body created from one essence. چو عضوی به درد آورد روزگار دیگر عضوها را نماند قرار. When time life afflicts limb with pain the others cannot remain at rest. تو که از مهنت دیگران بیغمی نشاید که نامد نهند آدمی If you remain, remain indifferent to the burden of pain of others do not, you do not reserve the name of human being And I think it is about the humanity and it's, it's an amazing and beautiful poem And Absolutely. we all learned it at school if you remember Yes, By yes, heart, yes, and every time, and... every time U.S. engages in any war, we had Afghanistan war, we had, uh, we we have had Ukraine war, and God knows what other wars your United States is going to engage. I read this poem to my daughter that we are I mean she she keeps asking me why you're too upset why you get too upset and i say this is why because um we are the uh, the parts of one body human human being yes, and human yeah. and you know i hope i i'm sure that the day will come that we know that and Inshallah. we live according it Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, very good. Ziba Mir Hosseini, author of Journeys uh, Toward uh, Gender Equality in Islam. Thank you very much. Khoda Hafiz. Khoda Hafiz and thank you.